0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And here we are at the very beginning of a new year, 2021. But you have to listen hard to hear any church bells ringing. All we can hope for is better times and a return to freedom, which sooner or later we will have to stand up for and demand. I now have the 12 most listened to shows from this past year from 1001 Stories Network, and we'll share them at the end of this story. Back in the early days of 1001, we brought in a guest host who was a Bible story expert who gave us three episodes, one of which told the story of the Ark of the Covenant, but that's been gone from our archives for years. I've always wanted to do a better job with that story and approach it from a different angle. In my opinion, the Lost Ark of the Covenant, which the Bible claims to have had very unusual powers when placed in the right hands, is one of the world's greatest unsolved mysteries. And I found an interesting tie-in recently with the Ark, with its unusual powers, and the story of inventor Nikola Tesla. Both Tesla and the Ark have interesting histories, and both involve scientific theory, so they have something in common. And Nikola Tesla had some informed opinions about the Ark of the Covenant, and how it could have gotten its special power to annihilate enemies. Opinions that I believe are worth listening to, as are the stories of the Ark and Nikola Tesla. We'll start with Nikola Tesla, which is a very well-named in the financial world today thanks to innovator Elon Musk, who looked into the future, saw the rising need for automobiles that could run solely upon electric batteries, and created an electric car he named after Tesla, which has led a revolution in the auto industry that looks like it will continue for some time. Tesla's meteoric rise in stock values over the past few years has created a number of millionaires due to the stock's rise in value from a few dollars a share to over $700 a share today. His entry into the huge China vehicle market contributed in large part to that rise. About Nikola Tesla. In the age of Edison, Westinghouse, Marconi, and J.P. Morgan, Nikola Tesla was a giant of innovation because of his contributions in the fields of electricity, radio, and robotics. He was an electrical engineer and a genius, Today's Elon Musk recognized Tesla's forward-thinking contributions, many of which were so futuristic that Tesla wasn't able to fully reap the rewards of his inventions during his lifetime, and Musk honored Tesla by using his name for his vehicles. Nikola Tesla was born in Serbia, in the Austrian Empire, on July 10, 1856, and studied engineering and physics in school, where he was impressed by his physics teacher's demonstrations of electricity. If you've ever seen the old Frankenstein movies where the lab is full of coiled wires and tubes with electric current flowing through everything, that's what physics labs looked like in the late 19th century. He made it to technical school in Graz on scholarships, but lost his focus by his second year and was spending more time gambling than studying, and he soon gambled away his tuition and allowance money. Although he was brilliant and had a photographic memory of sorts, he left school before graduating, cutting all ties with his family and friends to hide his shame. Eventually, news reached his friends that Tesla had drowned in the Muir River. In 1882, he got a lucky break and was able to take what he had learned and gain practical experience in Paris at Continental Edison in the rising new electric power industry. He soon emigrated to New York City, and that was 1884, when Edison manager Charles Batchelor was sent to the U.S. to manage the Edison machine works and took Tesla with him. There he worked for a short time at Edison Machine Works before striking out on his own. Before he left, he had the opportunity to meet Thomas Edison, who, after hearing from Nikola that he'd been up all night with very little sleep, made a comment about Tesla being a Parisian party man. Whereupon Tesla responded, No, it was all work. He had been repairing the dynamos on the ocean liner SS Oregon, which was docked in the city. Edison commented to Tesla's senior manager, This is a damn good man. In 1887, on his own and busy with new inventions, Tesla came up with a number of patents, one being the bedrock of motors that are currently used in electric vehicle development, that being an induction motor that runs on alternating current. Unlike the DC motors of the time, Tesla's motors didn't create sparks or require expensive permanent magnets to operate. Instead, they used a rotating magnetic field that used power more efficiently in a basic design that is still the core of most electric motors. Tesla was tall for his time, at six foot two, and thin; he only weighed about 160 pounds. He was well spoken, well dressed, and personable, and he soon found investors. His alternating current induction motor and related patents were licensed by Westinghouse in eighteen eighty eight, earning him a lot of money. Then he set his sights on patenting and marketing new inventions involving mechanical oscillators and generators, electrical discharge tubes, and early X-ray imaging. He also built a wireless-controlled boat, one of the first of its kind. He was the ultimate showman at conventions and invited celebrities to his labs. He understood the power of the press to get his name in lights. He made significant advances in wireless lighting and wireless electric power distribution, which he demonstrated in New York and Colorado Springs. In 1896, Tesla designed the power-generating system at Niagara Falls, a big advance for his A.C. system. Entire cities eventually ran on AC power after Westinghouse won a battle against Edison, the leading DC proponent. Their conflict is the subject of The Current War, a very well-rated 2017 movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Edison. The movie is a true story and highlights the battle between Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla. That movie is called The Current War. Tesla had a knack for weaponry and proposed the development of torpedoes well before World War I. These weapons eventually merged in another form, to be launched from submarines. Tesla failed to fully cooperate with well-capitalized industrial entities after the World War. His supreme abilities to conceptualize and create entire systems weren't enough for business success. He didn't manage to build successful alliances with those who could finance, build, and scale up his creations. For this reason, his name and brand never rose like those of Westinghouse and Edison, but he is remembered today for the many innovations he gave us. Elon Musk was quoted as saying, He deserves a little more play than he gets in current society, and thanks Tesla for developing the AC induction motor. And no discussion of Tesla should go on without mentioning Tesla's death ray. On the 11th of July, 1934, the New York Herald-Tribune published an article on Tesla in which he recalled an event that occasionally took place while experimenting with his single electrode vacuum tubes. A minute particle would break off the cathode, pass out of the tube, and physically strike him. Tesla said he could feel a sharp stinging pain where it entered his body, and again at the point at which it passed out. In comparing these particles with the bits of metal projected by his electric gun, Tesla said, The particles in the beam force will travel much faster than such particles, and they will travel in concentrations. This was known as a particle beam, and inventors including Marconi, Harry Grindel Matthews, Edwin R. Scott, and German engineer Erich Greichen all claimed later to have invented this independently. The death ray or death beam was a theoretical, some say theoretical, some say actual, particle beam or electromagnetic weapon first theorized around the 1920s and 30s. In 1957, the National Inventors Council was still issuing lists of needed military inventions that included a death ray. While based in fiction, research into energy-based weapons inspired by past speculation has contributed to real-life weapons in use by modern militaries and sometimes called a sort of death ray, such as the United States Navy and its Laser Weapon System, LAWS, deployed in mid-2014. Such armaments are technically known as directed energy weapons. In our two-part story called The Jatlov Mystery, we discussed the possibility that a Russian test weapon, possibly a particle beam weapon, acquired from Germany's post-World War II secret weapons stash, was responsible for killing a group of innocent college kids who were skiing and camping in the Urals. In 1923, Edwin R. Scott, an inventor from San Francisco, claimed he was the first to develop a death ray that could destroy human life and bring down planes at a distance. He was born in Detroit, and he claimed he had worked for nine years as a student and protege of Charles P. Steinmetz. Harry Grindel Matthews tried to sell what he reported to be a death ray to the British Air Ministry in 1924. He was never able to show a functioning model or demonstrate it to the military. During World War II, The Germans had at least two projects going, and the Japanese one, to create so-called death rays. One German project led by Ernst Scheibold concerned a particle accelerator with a steerable bundle of beryllium rods running through the vertical axis. The other was developed by Dr. Rolf Videro and is referred to in his biography. Videro was a Norwegian working in Germany when Hitler came to power, and when that happened, he moved his lab to Switzerland but later his brother was caught by the Nazis, and they threatened his life if Videro didn't return to Germany. The machine developed by Videro was in the Dresden Plasma Physics Laboratory in February of 1945, when the city was bombed. Videro led a team in March of 1945 to remove the device from the ruined laboratory and deliver it to General Patton's 3rd Army at Burgrub, where the machine was taken into U.S. custody on April 14, 1945. The Japanese weapon was called the Death Ray KUGO, which aimed to employ microwaves created in a large magnetron. This was supposedly the science behind the German fu Fighters' flying discs that emitted bursts of electrostatic discharges directed toward Allied planes, causing the engines in those planes to shut down. It was witnessed in both theaters, so maybe Germany shared the technology with Japan. No one knows, and most of it is either classified or considered fanciful. But there were many flyers of Allied planes who were witnesses to it, and they described those Foo Fighters as looking like ball lightning. Nikola Tesla claimed to have invented a particle beam, which he called Teleforce, in the 1930s, and he continued those claims up until his death. He explained that, quote, "...this invention of mine does not contemplate the use of any so-called death rays." Rays, he said, are not applicable because they cannot be produced in requisite quantities, and they diminish rapidly in intensity with distance. All the energy of New York City, approximately 2 million horsepower, transformed into rays and projected 20 miles, could not kill a human being, because, according to a well-known law of physics, it would disperse to such an extent as to be ineffectual. My apparatus, he went on to say, projects particles which may be relatively large or of microscopic dimensions enabling us to convey to a small area at a great distance trillions of times more energy than is possible with rays of any kind. Many thousands of horsepower can thus be transmitted by a stream thinner than a hair, so that nothing can resist. Tesla proposed that a nation could, quote, destroy anything approaching within 200 miles, and will provide a wall of power in order to make any country, large or small, impregnable against armies, airplanes, and other means for attack. He claimed to have worked on the project since about 1900 and said that it drew power from the ionosphere, which he called an invisible ball of energy surrounding the Earth. He said that he had done this with the help of a 50-foot Tesla coil. Antonio Longoria, in 1934, claimed to have a death ray that could kill pigeons from four miles away and could kill a mouse enclosed in a thick-walled metal chamber. He also used his invisible rays to weld metals. Death rays have been popular in science fiction since the 20s, and similar weapons are found in George Lucas's Star Wars. It would surprise no one if the U.S. and its counterparts had developed particle beam weapons capable of vaporizing enemy ships and aircraft. Tesla was a forward thinker. He envisioned a system that could transmit radio and electricity across the globe. After successful experiments in Colorado Springs, Colorado in 1899, Tesla began building what he called a global world system near Shoreham on Long Island, hoping to power vehicles, boats, and aircraft wirelessly. Ultimately, he expected that anything that needed electricity would get it from the air, much as we received transmitted data, sound, and images on smartphones. But he ran out of money, and J.P. Morgan, Jr., who had been providing financing, turned off the tap. All this was before the launch of radio, But Tesla's work became a part of the process that led to the invention of, and success, of radio. Although the main Tesla lab building on Long Island is being restored by a nonprofit foundation, the Tesla Science Center at Wardenclyffe, the World System Broadcast Tower he built there, was torn down for scrap to pay his hotel bill at the Waldorf Astoria in 1917. He had fallen on hard times. His ambitions had outstripped his financing. He didn't focus on radio as a standalone technology. Instead, he conceived of entire systems, even if they were decades ahead of the time and not financially feasible. He proved that you could send power a short distance, said Jane Alcorn, president of the Tesla Center. But sending power a long distance is still proving to be a hurdle. It would be monumental if it could be done. In 1943, several months after Tesla's death, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor in a long-running dispute over radio patents. But the victory was largely symbolic and was, in any case, too late to help Tesla. It's a sociological fact that Elon Musk took the Tesla name and launched Nikola Tesla into the stratosphere, says Mark Cypher, author of Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. Tesla's risen to the surface again, and now he's getting his due. Tesla was on the cover of Time magazine in 1931, but died a poor man in 1943 after years devoted to projects that did not receive adequate financing. Yet his most significant inventions resonate today. Nikola Tesla will have the last word on our next subject, coming up in Part 2, The Lost Ark of the Covenant, possibly, some people say, the world's first death ray. Next, at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast, We'll return with part two right after these sponsor messages. And now part two, the lost Ark of the Covenant. We're going to take you back to 620 BC for a close look at a wooden box. Not just any wooden box, but a very ornate box made of acacia wood to which was affixed gold handles and side trim, with a few other extras which we'll get to in a minute. This Ark of the Covenant was the holiest of holies for the Jews, and he was said to have some strange powers. As the story goes, in Exodus, God commanded Moses to build a chest called an ark for the purpose of transporting the stone tablets of law which contained the Ten Commandments which Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. It has been missing now for millenniums, and a number of researchers and seekers have gone to great lengths to find it. Some say they know where it is or what happened to it, but as of yet, no proof has been brought forward. In the Bible story, God commanded Moses to build this ark, and was very specific about how to do it. It was to be two and a half cubits long, meaning about four feet, four inches long, and a cubit and a half wide, as well as high. This would be two feet, seven inches wide, and two feet, seven inches deep. It was to be covered around both sides with gold, and have a gold rim at the top. Two stout rods of gold-covered sedum wood were to be run through the golden rings on each side, so that the Ark could be carried by four men, two in front, two in the back, and the Ark itself or its hardware was never to be touched. A tent shrine, known as a tabernacle, draped with linen and goat's hair, accompanied the Ark wherever it went, and offered a place in which to set the Ark when the men carrying it were at camp. The most striking feature of the Ark was its kipporet, or cover, known as the mercy seat in later traditions. It was made of solid gold cast into a plate from which projected two gold cherubims, These weren't the chubby little babies you see in stained glass windows and paintings. These were terrifying-looking human-animal hybrids that mediated divine power. In this case, they were winged sphinxes with their wings outstretched above them and nearly touching. In addition to the stone tablets was supposedly a golden vessel of manna from heaven and the rod of Aaron, which according to the story had undergone a miraculous transformation. The rod of Aaron refers to the steve that Moses' brother Aaron carried in the Torah. The Bible explains how along with Moses' rod, Aaron's rod was endowed with miraculous power during the plagues of Egypt that preceded the Exodus. For instance, in the book of Exodus, Moses held his rod over the Red Sea when he commanded it to be parted, and held it up in prayer before a battle. By the time the Ark reached the Temple of Solomon, the only thing left inside were the stone tablets. Where the Bible story gets interesting is during the times when the Ark manifests supernatural powers. At times a mist or a cloud would appear in the space between the wings of the cherubim, and that was said to be the divine presence. According to the Bible, at some times God would speak to Moses from the top of the ark. The ark was carried by the Hebrews and later on by the Israelites when they were going into battle, and in a number of instances it inspired terror in their adversaries. The ark brought forth powers that helped to topple the walls of Jericho, and one time, when it was captured by the Philistines and taken to their camp, It brought them only plague and woe. There it would glow and give off sparks, and consume with fire those who displeased it, and strike down dead anyone who dared touch it, as it did with the unfortunate Uzzah, a Jew who reached out to save the ark from toppling over as it was passing by him in a procession, and as quickly as he reached out and touched it, he dropped down dead. When the ark was placed in Solomon's temple, according to the book of Kings, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Second Chronicles provides the last biblical mention of the ark mentioning that King Josiah ordered it to be brought back to the temple. This was in 623 B.C. The temple was destroyed during the Babylonian conquest of 586 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar sacked and destroyed Jerusalem and forced the Jews into exile in Babylon. But 70 years later, a second temple was built. However, no mention of the ark was made. Some researchers believe that there was a deep vault in the original temple into which the Ark was lowered and buried. Others believe that invaders burned it and melted down the gold. There are traditions in the Talmud, which are the books of commentary on Jewish law and lore, suggesting that the Ark was hidden away, possibly by Josiah as he prepared for the Babylonian conquest. Modern theories opine that the Ark is buried in a tunnel under the Temple Mount, or perhaps in a cave on Mount Nebo in the Jordan River. Others say it's in a cave overlooking the Dead Sea. The Copper Scroll, an extraordinary treasure map found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, discusses sacred artifacts from the temple hidden in a similar location, but not the Ark. Others say that the Knights Templar carried the Ark off to protect it. And most interestingly, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church claims to possess the Ark of the Covenant in the city of Aksum. Their legend explains that the real Ark was brought to Ethiopia, long a center of Christianity since ancient times, by Menelik, with divine assistance, while a forgery was left to the temple in Jerusalem. Dozens of other locations have been theorized, but none have ever been proved. But now for the pièce de résistance. We are bringing Nikola Tesla back into the story, because he had an idea about how the Ark got its strange power. In 1915, Tesla posited the idea that the Ark may have been, in effect a giant Leyden jar, which is a capacitor, or device used for storing an electric charge. The Leyden jar wasn't officially invented until 1747. It has conductors, insulators, and negative and positive terminals, and there are definite parallels, according to Tesla, between the design and phenomena associated with the features of the arc and the Leyden jar. The wooden parts of the arc would have acted as the insulators, and the gold parts the conductors, with the cherubims acting as the terminals. The drapes of the Ark were constantly rubbing the sides of the Ark, as a balloon gets charged when you rub it against a woolen sweater. The narrow gaps between the wings of the cherubim could possibly enable coronal discharges that would glow, and cause ionization of the air, which would create a mist of cloud, while a sudden discharge of the charge stored within could easily kill a man. The poles enabled the Jews to carry the Ark without being electrocuted. Not a bad theory, Nikola Tesla, and thanks for all that you gave us. As promised, here's the list of our most listened-to episodes in 2020. Number one was In Harm's Way, the incredible story of the USS Johnston in World War II. Number two, The Adventure of the Red Circle at 1001 Classic Short Stories. Number three, The Million Dollar Bond Robbery by Agatha Christie. Again, 1001 Classic Short Stories. God Sees the Truth But Waits, by Leo Tolstoy. That one also from 1001 Classic Short Stories. The Roswell UFO Story, that one at 1001 Heroes, comes in at number 5. Number 6, The Oak Island Mystery, Part 1, 1001 Heroes. Number 7, Little Bighorn, Part 1, Voices of the Coming Storm, at 1001 Heroes. Number 8, The Adventure of the Six Napoleons, at 1001 Classic Short Stories. Number 9, Hitler's Death, What Really Happened. That was an author interview we did at 1001 Heroes. And number 10, The Horror of Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It's great to have you all with us this past year and going into this year. We appreciate it very much, and of course we have a lot of new shows and new stories to give you. If you haven't caught them yet, be sure to catch 1001 Stories for the Road, where right now we're doing The Return of Tarzan. And next on the schedule there is Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. And be sure to catch 1001 Greatest Love Stories, where we're now doing The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. If you haven't tried that, I think you're going to like that, even if you've read that story or seen the movie. And we have 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, as well as 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and The Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And this week we have a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story on there called The Doctors of Howland. It's a great story in which a 32-year-old single country doctor is suddenly challenged with the presence of a new doctor in his territory who happens to be a woman. And she turns his world upside down. That's The Doctors of Howland at 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories. I'd like to make one point going into this year, 2021. I do appreciate our reviews, Very very much. I do this show out of pure enjoyment for literature and pure enjoyment for history and stories, and I like to share all of it very much. I don't pretend to be an expert in literature. I probably read somewhere in the area of forty to fifty thousand words a week, and I'm aware that I get some wrong. But please, if you're gonna take the time to send us a review, please no more word police. If you do feel a burning need to correct some words that I've used and to help me out in a nice way, email me. At one thousand one stories podcast at gmail.com that's one thousand one stories podcast at gmail.com and constructive criticism is always appreciated just not in reviews however thank you all very much I do appreciate your listening and being great fans and sharing our show with others can you hear this can you hear this background noise that's the sound of f eighteen super Hornet jets practicing out of Naval Air Station Oceana in Virginia Beach. And since Christmas week, they've been practicing all day, every day on weekdays. Around here, we don't complain much. We call it the sound of freedom. But on days like today, they seem to be nonstop, and they do have me gritting my teeth. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay safe, and we'll be back next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story.